Bibles with you, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I do want to mention actually, uh, so Krista and Isaac are back as of 11 o'clock last night. And so yeah, from Guatemala, so we're glad to have them back as we think about uh, Nick and Pastor Nick and uh, uh, the, the ladies who are up in Stanwood, Washington right now doing training for Lebanon. And so be praying for them, but as they're, as they're going to be trained, you're coming back, and so we'll look forward to hearing how God's been at work, but we won't bug you today because you probably need some rest. So, so we're glad that you came back safely and look forward to hearing how God was at work in that. One of the things that we've been, um, many of our table groups, which is a small group that meets in homes during the week, uh, many of our table groups have been doing a, a Bible study on the gospel, on how to share the gospel, just reminding ourselves uh, what is the gospel, um, equipping ourselves to more and more understand it, to more and more be able to talk about it, so that, uh, so that this, this news uh, of the gospel, we would be ready to share it with anyone uh, whom we come in contact with. And so we've been talking a lot about the gospel, and so I thought today it would be good just simply do a message on what is the gospel. Like, let's actually just talk about that as a church. And and so, 1 Corinthians 15 is a passage that many of you probably know very well, possibly, if you've read your Bibles a lot, and some of you may not know it at all. Uh, but today, uh, we're going to look at, at Paul's words to the Corinthians as he's reminding them of what he says is absolutely of first importance. And so, uh, if you'll stand with me as we read God's Word this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, and we stand because these, these are not our words these are God's words, breathed out, as the Bible says, by God, and so we want to stand as we read it, just as a way of honoring uh, God and His Word. Let's read it. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that in this few moments that we have this morning together, that you would cause our ears to be open to hearing your word, the gospel. That you would cause our hearts to be fertile soil. That for those of us who know the gospel and who love the gospel and who have been saved by the gospel, that we would all the more rejoice and remind ourselves over and over again of your great love for us in sending your son, Jesus, to die on a cross, to be buried and to be raised. And so remind us of these truths today, but God, maybe there's some here today 
who are contemplating, thinking about these things. And I pray today that their hearts as well would be fertile soil to hear and to receive this word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so God, would you be pleased today to strengthen your church and to save sinners. And we thank you, God, that this is in fact what you do through your word. And so would you bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jaden was about a year and a half old, some of you may have heard me tell this story, but when Jaden was about a year and a half old, we were giving him a bath one night, and all of a sudden there were, there were bruises on his body. And it was just kind of odd that there were these bruises, except that he was a year and a half old boy, and we thought, you know, pretty rough and tumbling in our house, no big deal. Uh, but it seemed a little strange to us, and so we finished his bath, we put him to bed, and woke up the next morning, got him out of his crib, and his body is covered in bruises, head to toe. And so my wife and I obviously are concerned, uh, and so we rush him to our pediatrician. They get him in. As soon as they <clears throat> look at him and begin to assess things, all of a sudden, uh, everything changed in an instant. I mean, everything. People, they had more doctors coming into the room, and specialists were being called. They were talking about putting us in the ICU, and it was serious in an instant. And our whole world, in a moment, just changed in a, in a moment. There were words being thrown around, like the biggest one would be the word leukemia. And so we were rushed into the ICU. IVs were put in, it, put in. they began to do tests, and it was looking really grim. Uh, they said that he could bleed in his brain and die instantly or have permanent damage. And so my wife and I went from the day before laughing and playing with our son to literally hearing doctors give pretty grim things and thinking we didn't know if he was going to make it through that night. And so I slept with him in the ICU that night, <clears throat> all night thinking, what is the news that's going to be, that's, what, what are they going to find, what's going to happen? Uh, we had a three-month-old, Grace, who was at home, so my wife was home with her. But I remember the next morning, the doctor came in, and he had a smile on his face, and I really wanted to punch him in the face, honestly, because I wasn't having a happy night. And, but he came in and he said, good news. <laughs> he said, uh, your son's going to be fine. And just so you don't have to think about this the rest of the time, he had what was called, he didn't have leukemia, he went through the whole thing, he doesn't have this, doesn't have that, all those horrible things that we were contemplating, doesn't have any of that. He has what's called ITP. Now, if you're a doctor in here in the medical field, you know what that means. I don't even know what those initials stand for anymore, but I've never forgotten those words, ITP. They basically mean that his body had a virus, and his body not only attacked and to get rid of the virus, but it attacked his platelets, and they completely went away, uh, almost. Like he had no ability for his blood to clot, which is very dangerous. And so they were able to, with simple medication through the IV, within a day, that was reversed, and we went home, and everything was fine. But just imagine, though, for us in that moment, that doctor could not have said anything that was more 
amazing to us. There was no better news that we could have heard that morning after a whole day and a sleepless night wondering if our son was going to live or die. And literally to have the doctor basically say, good news, he's going to live, right? He's going to live. This is what the gospel is to us. This is the good news of the gospel. The word gospel in this passage that Paul is speaking about here is the word euangelion in the Greek, and it means good news. It's used to announce victory in, in the ancient times. It was, it was good news, and literally the gospel is spoken to people who have a no, no less of a sentence to death as my son had that night. It is spoken to people who because of sin, because of the reality of our brokenness, we too have a grim outlook. And the gospel comes to us, and I pray it lands in our lives, and even for some of you right here this morning, in such a way that there is no greater news on the face of the earth that you could hear, other than the fact that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live, but now... Because of what God has done on your behalf, you have been made alive in Christ. That is the best news that any one of us could have proclaimed and announced to us today. And this is what Paul is saying in this passage. In fact, he's reminding them, he's reminding these Corinthians of of this good news. He's giving them a reminder. He says several things here in the first two verses where he says to them that, first of all, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, I want you to know, you Corinthians, of this gospel. And he says, it's the gospel I preached to you. I proclaimed it to you because there's no better message that Paul could have brought to Corinth than Christ crucified and risen. And so he says, it's the gospel I preached to you. They had received the gospel, so not only did he speak the gospel, but they had actually received it, which means they had believed, they had accepted it, they had trusted in it. It is the gospel in which they stand, he says in verse 1. In other words, it's their, this gospel, this good news is, is where their confidence rests. It's what they, what they had confidence in. And it's the gospel he proclaims that saved you. And is saving you. In other words, you are saved, and yet the Bible says that one day, fully, in the presence of God, it will be complete. And he says, it's, it's, this is the gospel, that, this is how I came to you. I preached it, you received it. It's your confidence, it's your hope. It's the gospel, this good news, that has saved you. And he says, if, however, you hold fast to the gospel. In other words, and we're going to get into all the details of the gospel. In other words, as long as, you don't, as long as you don't actually begin to put your confidence in something else other than Christ crucified and risen. And then he says, for in that case, you had believed in vain. Do you know it's possible to believe the gospel in vain? It's possible to know the gospel, to hear the gospel, and to say, sounds interesting. Makes sense. I can, I could see where that could be true, and you could even be excited about it, be completely enthused about it, but have it not actually take root in your life, not actually have it transform you and change you, only to find out down the road that you could take it or leave it. And Paul says it's not as though someone actually believes it and then decides not to believe it. He says it's as though they never really believed it in the first place. 
They maybe assented to a, a group of thoughts, some truths, the idea, but it didn't really transform their lives. It didn't take root. And so Paul is, in essence, giving them a warning. Let us not be those. In fact, he, when he gives his testimony at the end of this message, when we get down to the bottom, he's going to say, in his own case, personally, the gospel did not come to him in vain. May that be true of you today. May you confirm and affirm today that the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, has not come to you in vain. It hasn't landed in your life in that way, that it has taken root and it is changing you and transforming you day by day by day. Let that be true of every single one of us. And so Paul then goes on to give us the the zoomed-in picture of the gospel. He gives us a very, the very... uh, zoomed in picture. In other words, there's, there's a greater story going on, and we're going to see that today, but he's zooming in. He says, here is that truth that is as of first importance. Here are these four things that are absolutely crucial, and it, it, it all begins with the word that. He says that Christ died, so he says this is of first importance, what he himself personally also received. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to more than 500, uh, that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the 12, and then to more than 500 others. So several hundred people saw the resurrected Christ in that day. And so Paul gives these four things. Here's that which is of first importance. Here's what's absolutely crucial to your life. It's that Jesus died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and he appeared. And in fact, his burial verifies and confirms that he died. And his appearing to more than 500, hundreds of of people after his resurrection verifies and confirms the fact that he actually rose from the dead. And we'll get into a few of those details later on. But one of the questions that we have to ask If the most important thing is that Christ died, he was buried, and was resurrected, and he appeared, verifying his resurrection, if if these things are absolutely true, why are they true? We have to back up, and we've been wrestling with this and talking about this in our our small groups. Why is it that, why did Christ have to die? We have to ask the question, why are these truths such good news to you and I? If it is good news that Jesus died for you, why is that good news? What is so good about it? And in reality, we have to understand the bad news and how bad the bad news is in order to understand fully and appreciate the reality of this good news. Like me sitting in the hospital, contemplating all night long because you know how our human minds work. I, I absolutely was worried that my son was going to be dead. That's what I believed. And when, when you have that in your mind and you mull over that, some of you have faced this and you're thinking about that, and that's the grim news that you feel. You feel defeated. You feel discouraged. And then you have somebody saying, no, he's going to live. It's because of how horrible it was that that good news felt like unbelievable kind of news. And I wonder this morning if you understand just how bad the news is. Let me remind you. The reason why Christ had to die is because we live in a world that is utterly 
and completely broken. You feel it this morning. You felt it last week. You know this to be true. I'm not telling you something that you don't know. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to believe in God to know that this world we live in is a world that is not put together. (laughs) It's a world that has messes and conflict and chaos and relational problems and divorce and drugs and addictions galore. There's bickering and fighting and hate and wars. Your body hurts. Some of you this morning as you're sitting here, you have arthritis, you have bones that have been broken, there's, you're tired maybe this morning. There's all kinds of reminders to us today that we live in a broken world. It has been corrupted and broken, and the Bible says that, that this brokenness, this world, this is why Jesus had to die. This is why there was a necessity for him to conquer this sin and death. And the reason is because this, this sin, this rebellion, or this uh, brokenness that we live in is the result of people, of Adam and Eve ultimately, and every single one of us to follow who rebelled against God. God had created the world and everything in it, including you and me. He created it all, and he created it good. He said, this is good. And therefore, because he's the creator, he's the ruler over all of it. It's his. And God then created mankind, and he set us up, and he made us, he delegated, in essence, his authority to us, that we might be uh, sort of like vice uh, rulers of his. We're, we're his agents to rule on this earth, to steward the earth, right? And in the garden, we see that God provided for his creation. He provided for all of it. He was good. And we see this harmony, this relationship between Adam and Eve and God was perfect. We see the relationship between Adam and Eve and all the rest of creation. There was perfect harmony. Everything was provided for. But Adam and Eve decided in a moment that they knew better than God. They decided in a moment that God was holding out on them. We won't go through all of Genesis chapter 3. But they decided that, that they didn't want God in his ruler his leadership and his rulership, they came out from under him and decided they could do better than God. And in that moment, in that moment, chaos broke out. Sin entered the world and corruption. And in that moment, the relationship that they had with God, the harmony that they had was completely broken off. Isaiah tells us that your sin cuts you off from God. They took themselves out from under his good leadership and decided to be their own gods to make their own way, to do it themselves. And so God, in fact, this is not hard to understand. God, who is perfectly just, that's hard for us to understand, isn't it? Perfect justice, we don't understand that. You and I, we all like justice, right? Nobody likes injustice, um, unless, (laughs) unless the justice is aimed at you in not such a great way, right? Then we all like it the other way, right? But the reality is, God is perfectly just. You, can, you and I can understand this to a degree because when your child comes to you and you say, I need you to pick up your room, and your child says, no. What do you do as a parent, right? <laughs> well, if you do well as a parent... <laughs> 
you enact some discipline on that child, right? This is not good, right? We know this instinctively. We know that it's not good for a child to disregard the very person whom God has put in charge of them to care for them and to to take care of them. And so we would instinctively punish them, right? Rightfully, lovingly. If, If that's how we, as failed, flawed human beings, understand and know instinctively that justice is good, how about a perfect God who is absolutely, perfectly just? He rightfully has to judge sin or he is not good and he is not just. And the Bible says that the wages of this sin, there's two consequences to our sin. The wages were death, physical death, and spiritual death. Hebrews chapter 9 verse verse 27 just simply says that man was appointed once to die. Why? That's not the way it was supposed to be. Man was appointed once to die because of sin. And then what comes next, according to Hebrews 9? Then comes judgment. In other words, we will stand before our maker and we will give an account for our lives before a perfect and a just judge. If you and I today had to stand before God and give an account for every single thing we have ever done before a perfect judge, how do you think the outcome would go? (laughs) Not good, right? I can just think of things I did this morning that I've had to repent of, right? Attitudes, right? Anxieties already. It would not go well. And this is why the gospel is good news because every single person who's ever existed on the face of the earth will one day have to give an account to God, the God who made them, the God who made them for his glory, the God whose image, in whose image they were made. And yet, Romans chapter 1 says we've suppressed this truth. We've pushed it out. We've rejected it. And therefore we will give an account. And so God has done for us, God has done for us what we couldn't do. He has dealt with this problem of sin for us. And this is why, this is why the gospel is such good news. This is why Jesus matters. And so I'm just going to go through a few things here in 1 Corinthians 15, a few points. This is why Jesus is so important. The first point of the gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel is, first and foremost, Christological. Now that's a big word, right? It just simply means it's all about Jesus. All of it. John Stott said, if we don't preach Christ, we don't preach the gospel. Without Jesus, you and I are absolutely and completely lost in this world. We have no hope. And why is that? Because Jesus is the only one who is uniquely and totally qualified to deal with your greatest enemy, which is not ultimately cancer and not ultimately is it wars and all the things that go on in this world. It is ultimately sin. And the fact that you and I have been cut off from God because of that sin. And so Jesus, God does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves in sending his son Jesus who's uniquely qualified. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says that Christ died. It wasn't just that anyone died, but that it was Christ who died, who was buried, who was raised, and who appeared after he was resurrected. It's Christ 
Christ is the one who is qualified and able to place himself in your place and my place and stand in judgment and take upon himself the very judgment that you deserve and that I deserve. It's Jesus. And so the gospel is ultimately all about Jesus. It's about him being sent to this earth by God and dying in our place on the cross. There is no greater thing that you could know today other than God sent his son to die for you in your place on the cross. There's no more important truth that you could know than that reality. In fact, in the Gospels, the Gospel narratives, when Jesus is talking to the disciples on the, what's called the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, it says that, in fact, not only is the Gospel all about the, the Jesus, it says that Jesus is the whole point of the Bible. <laughs> it says, he says that, that the whole of the Scriptures is all about Jesus. When you read the Old and the New Testament, it's ultimately about Jesus. He is the central figure He's the fulfillment of the promises of God, clear back in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12. And in fact, every war, every bit of chaos, when you read your Old Testament and you see all the chaos and the wars, kings rising up against God's people, what is that ultimately about? Ultimately, it's about the enemies of God trying to stomp out, trying to get rid of the line of Christ, that he would not come at all. And yet God, in his faithfulness, overcomes them. And so the gospel is ultimately about Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is uniquely qualified. He's the fulfillment of the promises of God to us. He is uniquely qualified to remove the stain of sin that we might not be given the sentence of death, but life would be pronounced. In fact, it says, Jesus says uh, in John chapter 11, when he's talking to Martha and Mary, who've lost their brother Lazarus, he says to them to comfort them. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever dies, whoever, actually whoever believes and lives in me, will, will live even though he dies. I just forgot it. I don't, I've had that memorized forever. Isn't that funny? Whoever lives and believes in me, will, will, will or actually I just messed it up again, but you will live even though you die, Right? That's the good news. You're going to die physically, right? Should, unless the Lord comes back. But even though you die, you shall live because of Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. Because of what he has done on your behalf. You get life instead of death. But the gospel is not only Christological about Christ, it's theological. The gospel is theological and that the word theology simply means the study of God. The, the gospel is ultimately about what God has done for you, what God has and is doing. That, in fact, it is God, according to verse 15, down later here, who raised Christ from the dead. It is God who, in Ephesians chapter 2, or chapter 1, where we see that God is the one who planned your salvation and the Christ accomplished your salvation and the Spirit applies it, but it is God ultimately who is directing the affairs. God is the, the center as well. When we study the gospel, we know that it is what God has done in sending his Son. Our offense, the offense of our sin and our rebellion is ultimately against God and must be reckoned before God, which is what Christ has done. And so it's about God, this gospel 
One person said that if the gospel we preach doesn't set aside God's wrath towards us, then it does nothing at all. What's the point? The most significant grim news of the Bible is that you and I are under the wrath of God in our sinfulness. And therefore, the best news is that His Son, God sent His Son to remove this wrath, to take it upon Himself and pay the penalty on our behalf. Our relationship that needs to be reconciled ultimately with God, the one, think about this in the gospel, the one who's been offended actually takes the initiative to repair the very offense against himself. Right? We're the beneficiaries. But God is the one who's been offended, and yet God is the one who, who does all the work to actually repair and restore and reconcile us back to himself. So it's ultimately about God. The gospel is ultimately also um, biblical. Notice what it says in verses 3 and 4. It says, Christ died for our sins according to what? According to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is, this is the story. So even as we zoom in and we see this, this picture of these four things that Paul's focusing on, we zoom out and see that this is what all the scriptures have been, been telling us all along. How do we know that there is one who is going to come and be the suffering servant who is going to die in our place? Well, because the prophet Isaiah, 500 years prior to Jesus being born, proclaimed in Isaiah 53 that there would be a suffering servant. And so we know these things because this is what the scriptures have proclaimed. And so the gospel is throughout all of the scriptures. This is what it's all been moving towards. This is what it's been about. It's biblical. But the gospel is also historical. Historical, not hysterical. Historical. And it's historical. This is actually, actually a central truth to Christianity. That the events of the gospel, this, this, these, these small events, the, not small in themselves, but these, these few, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ and his appearing, these events happened and were worked out in time in the lives of ordinary people. This didn't happen in a vacuum. God works out his purposes and fulfills his promises to bring about Jesus in the lives of ordinary people. That's what the Old Testament shows us. These, they didn't, people didn't wake up, the, the Israelites wake up and go, man, God is doing, God is going to do all these. Most people didn't even know necessarily that God was doing this. God was working out his purposes in the lives of real people, just like you and I, and he continues to do so to this very day. These are actual real events that have happened. Jesus existed in history. We know this. Jesus' resurrection, his death and his burial and his resurrection is historically verifiable. This is what Paul ironically is saying when he says that he appeared to Peter. We know this from the gospel writings. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Why would Peter, or Paul say that? Most of whom are still alive. He would say that. You got it. That's right. You could go ask him, Right? Totally makes sense, right? Isn't that incredible? Like Peter or Paul is writing this down to these churches and he's saying, hey, by the way, these truths about Jesus' resurrection that I'm telling you about, they didn't happen in a vacuum. There were real people who actually saw this and guess what? They're still alive. 
So you can find them and go verify that this is true. And if it wasn't true, then they would have said, right? Over, over 500 people witnessed and saw with their eyes the resurrected Christ. It doesn't get more verifiable in history than that. There are, there are things in your history book <laughs> that are believed as absolute true that don't even have anywhere close to that kind of evidence to prove it, right? It's amazing, not to mention just the fact of our Bible in general, that, we, that the Bible itself is the most verifiable book on the planet. Uh, it's extraordinary, and that's a whole other sermon. But, uh, but, but Paul is, is trying to help them see that this Jesus who was raised, he's not just talking about some fable or some fairy tale, but this Jesus who was raised, it is known that he is raised. It happened in time and in history. It is true historically. It is absolutely true and verifiable. And so we can have confidence in our God. We can have confidence. These, these things are absolutely crucial. In fact, Paul even goes on in the rest of this chapter for 50-some other verses and basically says, if this is not true, then our faith is completely in vain. And we may as well go home. If Jesus was not raised then your faith is in vain. It's absolutely crucial. And therefore, we have absolute evidence that it's true and that it is verifiable. But lastly, the gospel is also grace. I love how Paul turns after having shared about all the witnesses that this actually happened, it's verifiable, and then he gives a testimony, a personal testimony, a testimony of God's grace in his own life. Listen to what he says. Last of all, as to one untimely born, prematurely born is what that means. He says, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? because I persecuted the church of God. Think about this. Paul, prior to his conversion in the book of Acts, was one of the top people running around for the Jews, killing and imprisoning Christians. Moms and dads who believed in Jesus, Paul hated them. He had them thrown in jail. Paul stood by when Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, was, was stoned to death, and it says he gave his approval. Paul was persecuting Jesus' church. And yet Paul recognizes and says, and yet God came to me. And yet this Jesus appeared to me. Now, if you know the story of his conversion, it's, it's, it's crazy. Jesus shows up to him uh, and asks him the question, why are you persecuting me? Because if you persecute Jesus' church, you're persecuting Jesus. And, and strikes Paul blind. Pretty dramatic testimony, right? <laughs> and strikes him blind, sends him into town, and calls him to go preach the gospel. And so Paul, in, in this relatively short 24 to 48 hour period, goes from 
on his way to persecute more Christians to meeting the resurrected Christ, being completely transformed by it, to now going and preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. And so Paul, in describing this, he recognizes this isn't because Paul deserved anything from God, right? Paul deserved only one thing from God, like every one of us. He deserved God's wrath and punishment for his sin. And maybe if we're, if we're into ranking our sins, maybe Paul would rank up there really high. You know, killing Jesus' children. Like, that's pretty serious, right? <laughs> and, uh, and yet, Paul, recognizing this, says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the least. And yet, and yet, this is why he can say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me, Paul says, was not in vain. The word grace, just to put it in a simple term, be unmerited favor. It means that you get what you don't deserve. And Paul recognizes that he doesn't deserve any of this. And yet it's all of God's grace in his life that has saved him, that has transformed him. And he says, God's grace towards me, God coming to me and rescuing me from my sinfulness, rescuing me from death, it's not in vain. In other words, it took root, it transformed his life. And then he goes, on the contrary, he even goes further to say, the gospel doesn't just save us. It's not just God's grace coming to us unmerited, Nothing that we can earn, nothing we can do to get it. It's not only that God has come and saved him, but he says it also transformed him to the point that it changed how he lived his life. He says that this grace was not in vain. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Now that sounds like a really big boast, right? That sounds like a workroom thing going, I worked harder than you. You know, that sounds like a little bit like that. But Paul qualifies it. He's not like having this little bragging session. He actually qualifies it. And he says, he says but wait a minute, it's not I that was doing the work. But it's the grace of God that is with me that is doing the work. So not only was it God's grace to come and save such a wretch like Paul, but it, Paul recognizes it's also God's grace that is working in me and through me to change other people's lives. It has completely changed him and it is what's motivating him and it is, it is completely God's grace from first to last in his life. He's been transformed from death to life, life, from a slave to sin to being free. I love the picture in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where Abraham is given this picture after seeing in himself in such a short time the fact that we cannot live up to God's standards. That all of us have sinned, all of us continually fall short. We cannot live up to God's sins. That's what the Old Testament just shows over and over again. We can't do it. We can't rise to the occasion. We can't do enough. We cannot measure up. We continually fall short. And, and what does Genesis 3.15 show? It shows this picture where Abraham falls asleep. And God gives him this picture where God himself, by his grace, God makes a covenant. And oftentimes in making a covenant or an agreement, the two parties who are making the agreement would cut an animal in half. And they would put half the animal over here and half the animal over here and they both would walk through together and basically it was a way of saying I'm going to hold up my end of the deal 
you're going to hold up yours. And should you not, what happened to this animal will happen to you. And so what God does is this beautiful picture is God gives Abraham a picture that he's, he's the only one who actually goes through and walks between the two pieces of the animal, basically saying, I'm going to uphold both ends of the deal. God is going to do it. It's purely by his grace. He's the one that is going to uphold all of it on our behalf. And that's why this is called good news. You and I are saved by grace. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says that we are saved by grace through faith. And this, that is the grace and the faith, is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by our works, so that none of us can boast. I think at the end of the day, this is why every one of us as Christians here, if you believe in Christ, if you know of his grace in your life, if you've tasted this and you know this, this is why we, we should be the most humble people on the face of the earth. Right? How could we be arrogant in light of the fact that we are saved by grace, not of ourselves, but it's what God has done? How could we be prideful? How could we, how could we look down on someone else as if somehow they just don't get it? Neither did you. <laughs> Neither did Paul. Jesus had to come and strike him blind, right? Right? This grace ought to cause us to be humble, but it also ought to cause us, when we realize what's at stake in in people's lives, it should cause us to want to share this good news with every single person we can think of. Every person we know, let us share this gospel. Let us proclaim this good news. Let us share with them and help them understand what God has done on behalf of sinners like us. Let us be faithful in this to show them in our Bible studies we've been talking, it's called Two Ways to Live. To show them there's two ways to live. There's only two. There's not a scale. There's no sliding scale. In light of what God has done for you, there's two ways to live. It's to submit yourself to Christ and to his leadership in your life. To trust in him alone for your salvation and what he has done in taking your place on the cross in rising again, conquering sin and death. Or it's to reject his, his leadership. It's to and it's decide to go your own way, which leads to death and to judgment one day. Those are the two ways. That's it. The gospel demands that we, dis- that we go one way or the other. There is no in-between, right? I- even your indifference. You say, well, I don't know. It's like, even your indifference is a decision, right? And so there's two ways. It calls us to respond, that we must respond. We must, we must respond to this gospel. And so I encourage you this morning that maybe for some of you, uh, this just helps you wrestle and think about it a little bit more to appreciate what Christ has done for you. But maybe for some of you this morning, you, you need to today, by the grace of God, put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. To believe him. To believe that he died on the cross for your sins. John 3.36 is one of the verses we're memorizing in our Bible study. And it says that whoever has the Son has eternal life. In other words, if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. 
But whoever does not have the Son does not have life, and the wrath of God remains upon him. Because only through Christ and faith in Christ does that, does that wrath and that punishment get removed. And so I encourage you this morning to consider which one are you living for? Are you submitted to Christ? Or are you living your own life? Consider that this morning. We're going to take communion this morning. As we take communion, it's a way for us to celebrate what Christ has done for us. It's a continual weekly reminder that we can remind ourselves and never forget, never, never be unappreciative of what Christ has done. And so this is a constant moment for us to come before Christ, to come together as a church, to gather to the table and, and remember his death. Remember the punishment that has been paid for, that he took upon himself for our sins. To drink the, the juice, the, the cup, and to remember his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so I want to encourage you today as we, as we take communion, we, we, we have open communion here, and that what that means is, that means that uh, you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion, but it, but it also means, because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that what, what is required is that you be a believer, that you believe in Christ, that you know him, and, because you don't want to come and take these elements and do it in a, in a way that is flippant or trite, but to take it to know that, yes, I believe this, and therefore uh, to come to the table as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so even today, even in this moment, this might be the moment in which you do believe. And if that's true, then when we take communion, you take it with us as a believer in Christ. Then come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to pray with you. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father,